Humanitarian aid groups are warning of a humanitarian crisis in the making in Gaza. This as Israel tells Palestinian civilians to evacuate Gaza south so it can attack Hamas targets in other parts of Gaza. That's more than one million people on the move. Today is Friday, October 13th, and this is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. The evacuation order in Gaza and what is happening on the ground coming up. Then to Afghanistan, the UN is pleading for more aid as thousands of Afghans shiver in tents after earthquakes flattened villages and killed more than a thousand people. Also, a historic agreement on a large-scale solar project. It's 401. First, news headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. There are reports of Israeli raids in Gaza today, but still no indication yet that a ground offensive has begun. Israel gave Gaza residents in the north 24 hours to head south, which the U.N. has said is impossible under the devastation wrought by Israeli airstrikes. In Tel Aviv, NPR's Daniel Estrin reports that after Hamas's brutal incursion last Saturday, Israeli forces have their marching orders to take out Hamas. Israeli troops are uh, already along the Gaza border, deployed there. And what is Israel's objective? Well, the army spokesman now says we will not live next to a place ruled by a group compared, they're comparing to ISIS. So Israel's messaging is changing. In so many words, it's saying the goal is regime change. After 16 years of Hamas rule, they don't want Hamas rule in Gaza any longer. Daniel Estrin reporting. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's urging Arab countries to break with Hamas and condemn the Palestinian militant group for carrying out atrocities in Israel. But as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports, Blinken is also hearing a lot of concern about the Israeli military response in Gaza. During a stop in Qatar, where Hamas has an office, Secretary Blinken was unequivocal. There can be no more business as usual with Hamas. Murdering babies, burning families to death, taking little children as hostages. Every country, in our judgment, needs to condemn these actions, needs to hold them accountable. His Qatari counterpart was asked if he would close down the Hamas office in Doha, but Mohammed Altani says the communication has been useful, particularly when it comes to trying to resolve the hostage crisis. Altani is urging the U.S. to help Palestinian civilians trapped in Gaza. He says collective punishment is unacceptable. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Doha. A new NPR PBS News Maris poll shows Americans are broadly supportive of Israel, but as NPR's Domenico Montanero explains, there are wide generational and racial divides. The survey of more than 1,300 adults found 65% believe the U.S. should voice public support for Israel. That crosses party lines, but feelings are different among younger Americans and non-whites. 78% of those 45 and older think the U.S. should take a publicly pro-Israel stance, but just 48% of those under 45 said so. 72% of whites want the U.S. to back Israel, but just 51% of non-whites said the same. President Biden has taken a strong pro-Israel stance, and despite majorities saying they want that, the president is seeing no political benefit. 52% disapprove of his handling of the situation, the same number in the survey who disapprove of his job overall. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. Any new U.S. aid for Israel, Ukraine, or any other countries on hold as Republicans in control of the House remain undecided on a new speaker following Kevin McCarthy's ouster. It's now a contest between Georgia Representative Austin Scott and House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan of Ohio. You're listening to 
NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Local law enforcement says it does not know of any credible threats following calls from the militant group Hamas for a show of support for its attacks on Israel. The Anti-Defamation League of New England is urging people to be vigilant. The league's Petty Shukur says that the group does not recommend that schools or houses of worship close. However, and this is a big however, given the heightened tensions, Uh, We strongly recommend the following security procedures and precautions be implemented. Remain aware, maintain a heightened level of awareness regarding suspicious activities in your vicinity. Police in several communities say they're increasing their presence outside religious and cultural centers. Joint Base Cape Cod in Bourne is considering a plan to build housing on 600 acres of land on the military reservation. The base says the proposal is in its early stages, but would help the state deal with a housing crisis. A spokesman says it is intended to meet Governor Maura Healy's housing priorities while still being compatible with military operations at Joint Base Cape Cod. The first woman to lead the Massachusetts AFL-CIO has started on the job. Union delegates this week elected Chrissy Lynch as a local's president. Lynch says as more women take on leadership roles, issues such as child care will become a priority. She says unions are expanding because workers are feeling more powerful. We hear a lot about a worker shortage. Uh, my response is that there are plenty of working age people in Massachusetts. What there is a shortage of is good union jobs that actually pay the bills. Lynch takes over from Steve Tolman, who was the union president for more than a decade. A Springfield man has pleaded guilty to his role in an organized theft ring that stole catalytic converters across Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Federal prosecutors say Nicholas Davila was part of a group that stole $2 million worth of converters from 470 vehicles. Catalytic converters are part of the exhaust system of a vehicle and contain precious metals. 62 degrees in the Boston area. Looks pretty nice out there today. Tonight could dip to the mid-40s. Clear skies tonight, some gusty breezes. Then for tomorrow, should have some sunshine in the morning. Clouds moving in as the day continues, about 63 for a low. Sunday should be partly sunny, still in the low 60s, which is where it is right now. 62 degrees in Boston at 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. More than one million Palestinians are under evacuation orders after the Israeli military warned residents of northern Gaza to leave their homes. The United Nations has said an evacuation of that scale is, quote, impossible without devastating humanitarian consequences. Noor Harazin is one of the people forced to flee. She's a freelance journalist in Gaza. Her parents refused to leave Gaza City and are sheltering at a hospital, but she fled south with her kids and husband. I was one of the luckiest people to get a car and basically um, move from Gaza to southern Gaza with a car, but we saw hundreds of people taking this route on their uh, feet, and you're talking about tens of kilometers. And I saw women crying and children crying, and people are shocked. Supplies of food and water in Gaza are dwindling, and there is no electricity. Gaza's main power plant shut down on Wednesday because Israel has blocked supplies of fuel. And hospitals are struggling to provide care. Outside of the hospital, right now I am standing in front of ice cream trucks that now the hospital is using to refrigerate and cool 
the bodies of the people killed because there is no more rooms in the hospitals. This is how bad the situation here in Gaza is. Elsewhere in Gaza, Mohammed Abu Safiya is one of those who stayed behind despite the order. He's sheltering with his wife and kids in a school in Gaza City. Five minutes before we reached him, he said airstrikes began around the school. We are all civilians, he says. The Israeli Defense Forces appear to be striking randomly. Along with residents, humanitarian groups working in Gaza also got orders to leave, including the International Committee of the Red Cross. I caught up with their spokesperson in Beirut, Iman Trabulsi, and asked her how well she's been able to keep in touch with her colleagues working on the ground in Gaza. We are trying to keep as, as much as possible in contact with uh, our colleagues. They're struggling to uh, to have internet connection, to have proper electricity as they're all undergoing the same circumstances that the overall population are undergoing right now, a permanent state of fear. They don't know if their houses are going to be next. They don't know when they're asked to evacuate, where to go to as eviction notes are everywhere. I was speaking to uh, my colleague Hisham, who who's one of our team, our communication team, uh, in Gaza right now. He's with a pregnant wife. He has a toddler. And uh, he was telling me uh, over the phone, he, he he doesn't know where to take them. He doesn't know where's, where's the next place that will be uh, that will be bombarded. He doesn't know if the place where they're spending the night is going to be safe. He pretty much, I think that that's the worst thing when you don't know, uh, when you're a parent and you don't know if your children are going to make the night or not. Yes. And as these questions abound, how are your colleagues trying to stay safe right now? It's very hard to to find safety or to say that anywhere is safe around Gaza. Our colleagues are reporting to us that eviction notes over the past days, they were almost in every neighborhood around Gaza and therefore, technically speaking, nowhere is safe. And that's one of the questions I have. Where are people supposed to evacuate? I mean, Gaza is sealed off. We're talking about one of the most densely populated areas of the world. Can southern Gaza fit another million people fleeing northern Gaza? Well, in general terms, the the instruction that the Israeli authorities uh, have given to over 1.1 million people to evacuate from northern areas to towards the south, uh, without at the same time providing basic necessities such as shelter, food, water, medical care, not only endangers the lives of 1.1 million people, but furthermore, this is not in accordance and this is not compatible with what the international humanitarian law states in terms of of uh, ordering evacuation as the authorities need to maintain uh, or the need to guarantee that these populations have access to, the, to their basic needs, which is in these circumstances or the situation of siege that Gaza is undergoing, maintaining or guarantee this access to basic needs is no longer a guarantee for the majority of the population. These are the stories that we're hearing. People are struggling to find food, mm-hmm. water, access to health care is becoming more challenging every day and by the hour. Well, I saw a statement this morning from the ICRC saying that your organization is, quote, scaling up to provide life-saving relief in the middle of this evacuation. Can you give us more detail on that? What does this scaling up look like? 
at the moment we are trying to be able to provide further assistance but at the same time that is not possible if we're not provided with the proper uh, security guarantees for our teams to be able to move around Gaza to provide assistance without risking their own lives. Um, we've been able to provide some assistance. We cannot say that the assistance that we provided is enough as we are facing uh, a complete uh, collapse of uh, the health sector, uh, a near collapse of the water system. We want to do more, but at the same time, if we're not provided with the proper security guarantees, we will not be able to uh, do the, the work or right. to provide the much needed assistance the way we want to. So is the ICRC going to be running out of important supplies quite soon? It's a, it's a fact today that there is a need, a crucial, it's a matter of life and death that further humanitarian assistance is provided. We continue our discussion bilaterally with the parties uh, involved in the conflict in order to be able to, to solve several files, including the assistance files, including the hostages files. Uh, but it's crucial today. It's a matter we're really running against the clock when it comes to uh, providing further assistance. The pe people cannot survive for a long time in these circumstances with no health, no food, no water, no safety. Iman Trabulsi is with the International Committee of the Red Cross. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. And you can see NPR's full collection of stories about the war at npr.org slash Updates. Healthcare coverage for life. Guaranteed monthly income until you die. Very few Americans enjoy these benefits today. But auto workers had them for years, and now they want them back. It's one of the sticking points in the talks going on now between the big three automakers and the United Auto Workers Union. NPR's Andrea Shu has more. On the picket line outside the Ford assembly plant in Wayne, Michigan, it's a gathering of generations. There's Drew Van Washinova. I just got out of high school and I've been working here for about two weeks. Two weeks before the strike started. He's happy to have the job and thinking his timing might not be bad. Hopefully I'm getting in at a good time with uh, this contract coming up. I'm really excited about it. And who else is excited? Mario Williams, who's worked for Ford for almost three decades. So yeah, I've got 29, I'm retiring next year. So that's why it's so important to me. It's like, this is not just for me before all the new people coming in. Williams is what's called a legacy worker, hired in before 2007 when the UAW agreed to big concessions. New hires had to do the same work for less pay and far fewer retirement benefits. Now fast forward to today, the big three have agreed to get everyone back on the same wage scale, but they haven't agreed to bring back pensions or retiree health care. And that, in particular, worries Williams and his friend Christy Barrymore, who works in the paint shop. I can tell you just about everybody that makes as long as we have is going to have a knee replacement or a hip replacement shoulders, or shoulders. Yes. It's wear and tear yeah. on your body. Uh -huh. And you're in there and it's 100 degrees and you're throwing wire harnesses in a car. It's, it's hard, hard work. Now these two will tell you they do have excellent health care. They pay no premiums. Their co-pays are low. And they will get essentially the same thing in retirement but not those hired after 2007. 
That's because those same generous benefits brought the car companies to their knees. In the financial crisis, two of the big three filed for bankruptcy. Merrick Masters is a business professor at Wayne State University. There was no way that they were going to be able to survive. The pool of retirees was ballooning. At one point, GM had 10 retired workers for every active one. The car companies couldn't compete with their foreign rivals who had set up non-union shops in the South. Plus, companies all over the place were getting rid of pensions. Hardly anyone was offering retiree health care. It was becoming harder and harder to justify. The UAW agreed to the concessions, seeing it as a way to return their companies to profitability. But now that profits have come roaring back, the union is demanding those benefits back as well. And Sean Fain, unlike previous leaders in the recent past, has pushed this. And already that push has yielded results. GM says it's offered to put more money into employees' 401k plans, which replaced pensions, and to set aside more money that retirees can use for health care. Ford and Stellantis have also upped their offerings. Outside the Jeep plant in Toledo, Ohio, Chris Snyder, who builds engines, wonders how much more the union will be able to squeeze out of the companies. I just don't think that a company's going to pay you for 20 plus years after you've already Sure, you've given them 30 plus years of your life, but another 20 years that you're going to live, I mean, that's a long time to be asking for. But Chris Snyder does want to see changes to their 401ks. Right now, the automakers cap their contributions at 40 hours a week. So here at Stellantis Jeep, we work 60 hours a week. He wants the cap removed and wants some additional matching incentive to encourage younger workers to save. Merrick Masters says he expects the big three will get creative to satisfy the union's demands, but a return to the retirement security of the past? Well, that's a hard sell. Their investors would literally throw up their hands and declare them something that you don't want to invest in. In other words, not a chance. Andrea Hsu, NPR News. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. One of the stories we're following, Representative Jim Jordan has won the Republican nomination for Speaker of the House. We'll be following that story through the day and tonight and coming up in about 40 minutes on WBUR. The Taylor Swift concert film is a slightly abridged cinematic version of the Superstars' performances. We'll be hearing about it coming up. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. The final trading day of the week was mixed. The Dow pulled in a little more than a tenth of a percent. S&P lost a half percent, and the Nasdaq also lost ground. It fell about one and a quarter percent. Business news comes up at 6.30 on WBUR. It's 4.19, and the forecast is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fresh City Kitchen, offering a thoughtful approach to catering your special occasions. FreshCityKitchen.com. 
and Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenholleran.com. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. 62 degrees in the Boston area. A little chilly out there, but pretty nice. Tonight may go down to the mid-40s. Clear skies up above. And then tomorrow we could have some bright skies early in the day. Increasing cloudiness through the day. Temperatures about 63 for a high. Sunday should turn out partly sunny, still in the low 60s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Watching events in Israel and Gaza over the last week has brought grief and pain to many Jews and Muslims in the U.S. Hamas launched its surprise attack last Saturday, and Israel's retaliation is still unfolding. This is a time when many people turn to their faith and their community. So we've invited a rabbi and an imam to share how they are counseling their congregations here in the States. Imam Muhammad Herbert is a resident scholar of the Islamic Center of Johnson County, Kansas. And Sharon Brous is senior rabbi and founder of IKAR, a Jewish congregation in Los Angeles, California. Good to have you both here. Thank you, Ari. Absolutely a pleasure. Thank you for having us. What will be the message that each of you give to your congregations as people gather to pray together this weekend? Imam Herbert, your holy day is today. Why don't you begin? Yeah, I think when we speak about a, uh, a message, uh, I think you uh, elaborated it so eloquently when you mentioned that a lot of people turn to faith when they're looking for answers, when they're looking for that guidance in life, that light. And for our sermon today, what we've prepared is kind of a, a reflection piece, taking an opportunity to reflect on our lives internally, and then to think about how it is that we will respond externally, right? Faith without action is absolutely useless. And action without faith is misguided. And so when we speak about an internal response to how it is uh, uh, that we internalize everything that's happened, one of the key things that I hope for my community to, to step away from the, the sermon with is understanding that there is pain on both sides, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or God Almighty, he mentions in the Quran in chapter 3, in verse number 140, that if you have suffered injuries in the battlefield, understand that the opposition has suffered uh, injuries and pain as well. Rabbi Browse, what is your message going to be this weekend for, for your congregation when they gather for Shabbat services? What I've been focusing on all week since the moment that we heard about this attack on Shabbat, which was also the holiday of Simchat Torah last Saturday, a day in which we are commanded to experience joy as a Jewish people. So there is an added heartache that it happened on this holy day. I think the first role of a pastor in this moment is 
just to create sacred space where people can grieve together and hold an uncomplicated sorrow with one another. I also see the pastor's task as offering some kind of moral clarity, which in this case um, means both repeating again and again that there is no justification for crimes against humanity, that the rape, kidnapping, murder of innocence is never justifiable. And I also need to remind my community that Palestinians are suffering terribly also now and will continue to in the days ahead. And so just as we ask the world to see our pain and stand with us in our sorrow, it's our moral and spiritual obligation to do the same, to expand our lens of care and concern, to also encompass the Palestinian people. I was on a briefing yesterday and there was um, a Bedouin doctor from Soroka Hospital in the South, Dr. Yasmin Abu Fraiha, and she's been treating many of the people who came in from the massacre site. And she said, the real dividing line is not between Israelis and Palestinians, but between those who believe violence is the answer and those who believe there is another way. And I believe there's another way. And Imam Herbert believes there's another way. And most of us believe that there's another way. So together, we have to reject the very reductive idea that Jews and Palestinians must be enemies eternally and instead create a different way of finding one another in relationship and lifting up and affirming our own humanity and one another's. I know that this is personal for people in both of your communities. Um, Imam Herbert, people in your town have relatives in Gaza. Rabbi Browse, people in your congregation have family members in Israel. Can you each tell me about a conversation you've had with a specific person this week, what they've needed and what you've offered them? Rabbi Browse, do you want to begin? Well, one of my closest friends, um, her best friend and lifelong friend is among those who have been abducted and taken into Gaza. And I want to say her name, it's Vivian Silver. She started an organization called Women Wage Peace. She literally has dedicated her life to making peace between Israelis and Palestinians. She is a mother, a grandmother, and a worldwide activist. And she is among those who we have not heard from since she texted her sons that, that Hamas was in her home. Imam Herbert? We have uh, community members who have family in Gaza, and when it comes to reaching out to some of our Palestinian family members, I can certainly sympathize with Rabbi Sharon and her friends. It's hard, it's very difficult knowing that your friends and family are in pain. It's even more difficult when you can't reach them. One brother in particular who reached out to me just a couple of days ago He's a, a doctor in the community, actually. And so this is someone who, uh, but they're thinking to themselves that there's nothing that we can do. And then obviously, you know, we yearn uh, as a community for everyone that's losing lives. Could each of you give us one passage in your sacred texts that have been meaningful to you this week that you've turned to? In the Jewish community, we start reading at the beginning of the Torah this week. This is Parshat Bereshit. It's called the very beginning of Genesis. And I've been thinking about the end of the sixth day of creation, which is the first day that Adam and Eve are alive. And the, the rabbis tell us in the Midrash that at the end of the first day, when it grew dark, that Adam got really scared because he had never seen darkness before. And he started to weep and scream and cry. And Eve came over and just sat right across him and cried with him all night long until the dawn came. And I feel it's such a beautiful, powerful statement about how there's always a dawn that comes after even the deepest darkness. And our job as human beings is to come and sit with one another and hold each other in the sorrow until we're able to once again walk toward the light. 
Imam Herbert. For me, I think the passage that I mentioned in the beginning of the interview is one that really sticks out. That just as you have suffered injuries and losses, the people uh, that you are fighting have also suffered injuries and losses. Um, and I think during times like this of extreme loss, it's easy to lose sight in God. It's easy to to take the easy route out or the scapegoat route out and to say something like how can a god of mercy allow something like this right but the truth of the matter is there are ups there are downs stay connected with god and at the end you'll find your paradise before we say goodbye is there anything you would like to say to each other i will say to you imam herbert i am holding you and your community your beloveds in your mosque and their families in gaza in my heart and in my prayers. And I know that there is a better way for humanity that we can walk together toward peace, dignity, and justice for all people. And I I really appreciate you as a partner in that work. Thank you. Absolutely. I think um, also I sharing the same sentiment. Uh, for me, I think one of the the, the most profound things that, that I heard you say that uh, uh, really, really stuck out to me, Rabbi, was um, you mentioned that the real enemies of this war are not the Jews or the Israelis or the Palestinians, it's those people who have decided that violence is the only answer. Um, and that really, really stuck with me that this shows that there actually is a way to have a conversation. Imam Muhammad Herbert of the Islamic Center of Johnson County, Kansas, and Rabbi Sharon Brous of ECAR in Los Angeles. Thank you both. And thank you. Thank you, Ari. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Some decent weather coming up for the weekend. On the chilly side tonight, about 45 for a low. May have winds picking up. Then tomorrow, sunshine with clouds moving in during the day. Breezy again. Temperatures about 63 again. Sunday should bring in clouds and sunshine both, about 62 degrees tops. WBUR's Field Guide to Boston is a new way to experience the region. Find your way and maybe something to do over the weekend at WBUR.org slash field guide. 62 degrees at 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Fall Experience, featuring four dynamic ballets on stage now through October 15th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Endless Energy, a certified AeroSeal installer designed to help homeowners get ready for winter by sealing versus replacing existing ductwork. Go EndlessEnergy.com. And Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at ExpressYourHealthMA.org. On this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, actor John Goodman explains how he can play both lovable heroes and absolute lunatics. If you're cuddly and adorable, there's got to be a reason why, and it's usually filthy. <laughs> really? Um, <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. Join us for more secrets from the Actors Studio, plus conversations with journalists Bob Woodruff, Jenny Slate, and Stuart Copeland. That's this week's news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In the Mideast, a mass exodus now out of northern Gaza after Israel's military told Palestinians to leave ahead of an expected ground invasion against Hamas militants. This follows attacks on Israel last weekend and retaliatory airstrikes that have claimed at least 3,100 lives on both sides. President Biden spoke with the families of 14 Americans today still unaccounted for, and a small number of them are likely being held hostage. 
White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby says despite calls by Hamas leaders for a day of rage, there are no signs of any direct threats here in the U.S., but authorities remain vigilant. I want to be completely and crystal clear on one thing. At this time, none of our intelligence agencies have any specific intelligence indicating a threat to the United States stemming from the Hamas terrorist attack in Israel. That said, we continue to remain vigilant to any and all possible threats. China has arrested a foreign national accused of stabbing an Israeli diplomat outside Israel's embassy in Beijing. The diplomat is now in stable condition. NPR's Emily Fang reports authorities have yet to determine a motive. The attack happened in broad daylight on a leafy street in Beijing where many foreign embassies are located, including the U.S. embassy. Security camera footage shows a light-skinned and balding male in a white shirt repeatedly stabbing and grappling with the Israeli diplomat. The diplomat is now in stable condition and in the hospital. The Israeli embassy did not reveal who the attacker was. It happened during this period of ongoing violence in Israel and the Gaza Strip. China, where the stabbing occurred, says it's a neutral party on the Palestine-Israel conflict. It has not condemned Hamas, the terrorist group which attacked Israeli villages last weekend, and says it continues to support a two-state solution. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Today, a federal jury in Boston found a former congressional candidate from North Andover guilty of violating federal campaign laws. Prosecutors say Abija Das took excessive campaign contributions to buy a super yacht, cover his business expenses, and pay off personal debt. He could get up to five years in prison and a quarter of a million dollar fine. Das is an attorney. He's under indictment for a separate case of diverting more than $5 million from his client accounts for personal expenses. He has pleaded not guilty to those charges. There are electric vehicle chargers being installed throughout the state for cars and trucks, but a new type has been installed in Marshfield. A charging station for aircraft is now at the Marshfield Municipal Airport. Eversource Vice President Talak Sibramani says that bringing enough power to the charging stations is the first step. The power we put in usually has the capacity to put a lot more. So once they have more demand, what they have to do at that point is really add the actual charging units. The power supply for that is already in place. This is the first public electric aircraft charging station in the state. City of New Bedford has acquired the historic New Bedford Armory from the state. The armory was built in 1904 for the Massachusetts Army National Guard. It closed almost 20 years ago. The state will repair the building that had been damaged in a fire and then give it to the city. New Bedford's mayor plans to seek proposals to redevelop the site. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies, hosting an in-person open house tomorrow, 8 to noon, salemstate.edu graduate. And the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the Salem Witch Trials, Restoring Justice. On view now, learn more at pem.org. Winds are picking up. They should continue overnight tonight. Clear skies tonight. Temperatures in the mid-40s for a low. And for tomorrow, we could have bright skies early in the day, but turning gray as the day continues. 63 degrees tops, then Sunday partly sunny in the low 60s once again. It's 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Organic Valley, 
a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Running on the block to be around you. Troy Sivan is a rarity in pop music. He's a huge global superstar with killer dance moves, an impeccable falsetto, and millions of hardcore devoted fans. None of that is unusual. But unlike Harry Styles or Justin Bieber or Bruno Mars, when Troy Sivan sings about love and dating and sex, he sings about men. And he gets specific, including on his new album, Something to Give Each Other. Heads up that our conversation will also talk about sex in ways that you might not often hear on public radio. Growing up in Perth, Australia, Troy Sivan used to listen to pop music, and I asked if he would change the pronouns in his head like so many queer people did. Girl to boy, she to he. Troy Sivan told me he wasn't even brave enough to do that. I don't think I would have dared because I was definitely not comfortable with my identity. And for some reason, I was hyper aware of it. Some of my earliest memories are me trying to suppress my sort of difference in identity. I, I, I don't know where that came from, but um, unfortunately that was a really big part of my internal monologue as like a kid. Hmm. And so how much are you today making the music that that kid would have wanted to have, that the teenager would have wanted to have? It's interesting because I, I, I really am doing that in, in so many ways. You know, I, of course there's a big element of pride in the fact that I am now so comfortably openly gay. I, I am so thankful to be gay and and I love being queer. But I also just musically, especially on this album, there's so many little nostalgic references to the pop that I grew up listening to. Pop stars of the, like the early noughties and um, you know, even down to the choreography and the music videos and everything. I really am doing it for, you know, six-year-old me who just wanted to be a pop star so badly. You know, it's one thing to write a same-sex love song. You often go farther than that. You've written about aspects of queer life that do not always get a mainstream audience. Like the big single from your last album, Bloom, had an explicit mm -hmm. double meaning. On this album, the lead single, Rush, could describe the general feeling of being on a dance floor or it could reference the specific brand name of a borderline legal product that makes people feel great on a dance floor. Is there ever a part of you that thinks, uh, should I really be letting people in on this particular aspect of the queer experience? I, you know, it's really interesting because I actually don't think about it that much. I, I think, you know, I feel very emboldened by a supportive family and supportive friends that, that I feel kind of bulletproof when it comes to talking about whatever I want to talk about. And so 
you know, maybe to other people that, that can feel like maybe a bit more intentional or radical than, than it does to me. Huh. It's funny because you and I were both raised in observant Jewish families that were liberal and supportive. Right. And I sometimes feel like, oh, I can't believe my parents are going to see this or hear this. And I'm not making music videos in a jockstrap or chaps. <laughs> like, right. You never, ever feel that way? No, no, no. Okay, so that, you know, I don't care about the world hearing it. My parents I care about, definitely. <laughs> okay. um, and my hope is that it just kind of goes over their head a little bit and I kind of just leave it up to them to, to educate themselves. So you have not had the rush conversation with them? No, no, I have not. But you trust that they figured it out at some point? I know that they have figured it out. I know that they figured it out. <laughs> How do you know that? Because I have siblings and they talk and, you know, it's just like, I know. But but it's, you know, it's singing about anything intimate. I worry much, much, much more what my older brother is going to think than, than I do what the rest of the world will. Hmm. One of the other things that you explore on this album is the way casual encounters can be more than just hot. They can be an opportunity for real connection. Not totally. despite their anonymity, but in a way because of it. He's got the personality, not even gravity could ever hold him down. He's got the sexuality of a man who could take a room and drown it out. Well, so, you know, I, I have always kind of been geared, I think, towards long-term relationships. Then I found myself single for the first time, really, since I, you know, became an adult. And I just had a few encounters that really, really changed the way that I that I look at intimacy. Let's go. You know, when you're cuddled up to someone that you met a few hours prior, and you're, you know, like really enjoying that moment. That's not, it's not fake. It's just different. And I, I just got such joy and such pleasure out of these like quick encounters that can totally, totally fulfill you. So that's ultimately where the album title came into it was me realizing that, that everyone has something to offer each other and something to give each other. There's a great specific lyric in the song, How to Stay With You. I feel like my brother might like you, just not in the same way I do. What do you think makes that level of detail work for a broad, general, global pop audience? Well, that's something that I really learned listening for the first time to Back to Black by Amy Winehouse. <laughs> you know, she was writing these super, super specific lyrics and you would think it would kind of alienate the audience, but I, I, I think it does the opposite. I think it just brings them in, and, and I think people are really good at taking a feeling from a song and applying it to their own lives. And the more specific that feeling is, I think the, the better. So that's something I try and do, you know, always in my songs, is, is just really, really write from a place of, of real life. Hmm. People take different paths to pop stardom, and yours led through video blogging. Almost exactly a decade ago, you posted a coming out video at the age of 18. You'd been out to your family before, but not yet to the public. And you yep. were at the time in talks with a record label, but had not yet signed a deal. Yep. From where you sit today, what would you want to tell that teenager? What would you want them to know? 
You know, it's interesting. I think, I don't know that I would say too much to him. I mean, maybe I would just like give him a little hint that like music is going to go well and you're going to be really happy with, with how everything goes. Like maybe I'd show him just a tiny snippet of a music video or something just to get him excited. How would he react to that? I think I think he would be really really excited. I think I think I would be scared. You know, when I, when I was a kid, speaking of that early internalized homophobia, I I think maybe there would be a little bit of fear. You know, like oh wow, you're you're doing that, or wow, sometimes you you know wear makeup. Um, I think there would be fear, but I, I I think there would be a huge sense of relief as well, and I'm sure that um, that he would be very very excited for the future. Troy Sivan. His new album is called Something to Give Each Other. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Days after rolling earthquakes flattened nearly a dozen villages in western Afghanistan, thousands of families are sleeping in tents. But as winter looms, Will there be aid for them to rebuild their homes? And Pierre's Dia Hadid reports. In a video shared by the UN, Afghans clear away the rubble that was once their village in Zindajan, a remote dusty district in the country's west. The only thing that still sticks out of the rubble in many cases is the door or the door frame. Philip Croft is a spokesman for the World Health Organization. He just returned from Zindajan. More than 1,000 people died there. They're mostly buried now. Outside of every village, there are new uh, graves. And uh, it's uh, not individual graves. It is uh, one long row of graves that every uh, every meter or so, they put a stone to indicate the person underneath. Most of the dead are women and children. At least some of them thought there were bombs dropping nearby and they ran inside for cover. Many of the wounded are female as well. Another UN video shows a woman aiding a girl. Officials tell me the Taliban is turning a blind eye to women working in the field, even though they've been largely restricted from public life since the group seized power two years ago. It suggests how devastating these earthquakes were. One local, Mustafa Sahel, says 10 villages were flattened in Zindajan, but survivors are getting help from the UN, charities, even locals. But he tells NPR producer Fazal Minallah Kazizai that many others aren't getting aid, but their homes aren't safe to live in now. He says they're sleeping in the wild. They've had to endure powerful aftershocks and even a dust storm. In the city of Herat, a few dozen miles from the epicentre, the situation is also dire. This is from journalist Abdul Karim Azim from the non-profit Alive in Afghanistan. Azim says the city is surrounded by tents. He says there's hundreds of families who don't have money for bread, but they've had to buy a tent to protect themselves from the cold. It's already biting. But international aid has been dwindling to Afghanistan. Donors are frustrated with Taliban restrictions, and there's crises elsewhere. 
Sadiq Ibrahim is with UNICEF. They're asking for $20 million to cover initial needs. The winter's coming. These people cannot continue to be living in these conditions. But already, the UN had to cut off food aid to 10 million Afghans because they couldn't raise the money. Now they only support 3 million of the most vulnerable people. And the area that was struck by the earthquake was already deeply poor. Many folk there are subsistence farmers who face punishing droughts for years. Ibrahim worries about what will happen next. So does Croft from the World Food Organization. So the price of inaction will be paid by the most vulnerable. And we just are calling on international solidarity with the Afghan people. A call for solidarity at a time when the world seems to lack so much of it. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Mumbai. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. At the U.S. House, the day began with Congressman Steve Scalise dropping out of the race for Speaker of the House, and it's ending with Jim Jordan winning the nomination, as happened in just the last hour. Our story is coming up in about 10 minutes. In the forecast, winds picking up and overnight tonight should be clear and windy with temperatures in the mid-40s. And for tomorrow, gusty winds once again, bright skies early, clouds moving in as the day continues with temperatures just about 63. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative. Your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. Pingree School, a vibrant, all-gender, independent day school for grades 9 to 12, north of Boston. Open house on Saturday, October 21st at 11, pingree.org. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the engineering design workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com slash MOS. Elena Kostruchenko recalls the moment she realized she was being lied to, by Russian state media. I read uh, Anna Politkovskaya's article about cleansing of Chechen village by Russian soldiers. I was shocked because it appeared that television lied to me. Her memoir, I Love Russia, and all the latest news Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Start your weekend here tomorrow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by McLean Hospital. For expert research-based psychiatric care, turn to McLean. Leading clinicians treating depression, anxiety, addiction, and more. Innovative care from specialists dedicated to improving lives. U.S. News ranks McLean number one for psychiatric care in the country. More at mcleanhospital.org. And Cityside Subaru, introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. To avoid the worst effects of climate change, the U.S. is going to need a lot more solar panels. Those solar arrays need to go somewhere, sometimes in forests or on farmland or on indigenous lands, and that can pit the solar industry against people inclined to support them, like conservation groups or agricultural interests or native tribes. 
Yesterday, some of those major stakeholders announced what they are calling an historic agreement to address land use issues and hopefully make it easier to install more panels in more places. Dan Riker led these talks. He is a senior research fellow at the Stanford University's Woods Institute for the Environment. Thanks for joining us. Good to be with you. Walk us through what this agreement achieves. The agreement, we hope, will advance large-scale solar development to fight climate change but at the same time promote land conservation and support local community interests. It's a tall order, but we think we can get there. Can you give us a specific example of a place where you think this might open the door for a project that could otherwise have been caught up? There's a variety of places. One is, you mentioned agricultural lands. You know, there's increasingly the ability to integrate solar panels into farm fields by raising the the height of the panels, by spreading them apart, Another would be on what we call disturbed lands, old surface mining sites, old toxic waste sites that have been cleaned up, shut down. There's a great example in Kentucky where an old coal surface mine is being redeveloped and it'll have enough solar panels to serve almost 175,000 people. So we've got good places to do it. What do you do about the large influential groups that actively oppose and continue to fight solar projects? I mean, how much of the basic problem of finding locations for these developments does the deal actually solve? Well, I think that's part of the problem. There is some active opposition, but if you can make the projects more attractive to communities, if you can make the projects more acceptable to conservation and environmental groups, we're bringing the price of solar down dramatically. Give you an example. You know, say you've got to build a a thousand acre solar project. Well, what about protecting, permanently protecting another thousand acres adjacent to it and not just protecting, but restoring parts of it? That's a deal you can really work out. To take a step back, the U.S. has a lot of homes, businesses, shopping malls, warehouses. Why isn't roof space enough? Why are solar farms needed in the first place? I would love to think that the rooftops of America could do it, but the problem is we are talking about an absolutely massive amount of land to really address climate. We're talking about land that's roughly the equivalent of the entire state of Massachusetts and Connecticut combined. We might be able to do 15 or 20 percent of what we need to do in this country with rooftop solar and urban projects, but we got to go to the big, big properties if we're going to really make a big difference. Given the scale of the need, you offered a couple examples of easy wins, an unused mine that can now be turned into a solar development. But are there going to have to be a lot of projects that aren't easy wins, that don't have an ideal resolution, where there are going to have to be trade-offs? There are indeed going to be trade-offs. There are you know, ideal places where you want to go initially. There are going to be tougher places where you need to go. But I think as communities get more comfortable with this, as conservation groups get more comfortable, you know, we have the largest conservation group in the country, the Nature Conservancy, having led uh, this negotiation from, from the environmental side. But the good news is there are plenty of places to build these projects where I think we can find acceptable resolutions and get these built and, and really address climate change. That's Dan Riker, a senior research fellow at the Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment and lead broker of a new solar development agreement. Thank you very much. My pleasure. All right, by now, we have all seen the videos and pictures from Taylor Swift's Eras Tour, where the pop star performs some of her biggest hits for stadiums full of screaming, diehard fans. 
And now, Swift's series of performances in Los Angeles has been turned into a concert film. We're about to go on a little adventure together, and that adventure is going to span 17 years of music. NPR's Bilal Qureshi saw the Eras Tour film last night, surrounded by kids and their moms, and he joins us to tell us all about it. Hey, Bilal, what a treat for you. Uh, yeah, it was. <laughs> Hi, also. <laughs> so, I mean, that was one of the first public screenings of this film here in L.A. What was it like? Well, pretty lit for a school night, I have to say. Um, I was very much surrounded by super fans. The theaters have encouraged people to stand up and scream. So we had people in like the full tour merch shirts on. I love it. AMC is selling kind of like coinciding, you know, tour merch style popcorn buckets. And and people had lights on. And you were, and as I said, you're encouraged to keep your phones on and people were filming. And so it was uh, a time at a movie theater I've not, I've not had. So kind of bizarre and kind of fun, I what, guess. What was your outfit? Did you have one? <laughs> no, I, oh. had, I had my notebook and I was trying to keep notes. So I was the real resident like buzzkill. Well, I may be the only human in LA who missed both Taylor and Beyonce when they were here, but I heard you actually went to both the Eras Tour and the Renaissance Tour? I did. Okay, well, we're going to focus on Taylor. How did the movie version compare with the actual concert? Well, I mean, I'd say that it, it's as far as faithful adaptations go, it's an incredibly literal adaptation of the show. Uh-huh. It was filmed without many bells and whistles. It's a very, you know, if you wanted to go back to the Eras tour, you can now be in it forever and ever because it will just be playing. Um, and, and you know, I mean, I did notice at the L.A. date that I saw there were a lot of huge camera you know, operators on the stages. And so there was an indication that there was a film being made. But, you know, you have the normal shirt cameras that are broadcasting live to the screen, you know, for the audience. But these were like next level. And so this is now also an IMAX in Dolby Cinemas. It's a very well-made film, but I would not say that there is much to be surprised by or to be, um, you know, startled by here. It's a pretty literal and a pretty faithful adaptation of the show. Well, okay, this summer, Taylor and Beyonce, they got a lot of credit for boosting the economy with all their sold out tours. And it's no secret that movie theaters have been struggling in the streaming era. The actor strike is still going on. So with this film, can Taylor, I don't know, bail out movie theaters this year anyway? I mean, the most amazing thing about this story is, first of all, how quickly this has become a film. I mean, the show was two months ago. So the idea of a concert film that's already going to be playing internationally in all the theaters while a show is on is kind of unprecedented. I think that's AMC's hope. Obviously, a lot of big films are not coming out. A lot of the smaller films have been struggling. It's the awards season, so those movies are already kind of a hard pitch to a lot of people because they deal with themes that maybe aren't so easy to market. So I think there is a sense that this and then uh, you know later the Beyonce film, which comes out in a few oh, weeks, yeah. would be saviors. But but I don't think that they are at all. I mean, they're so unusual in that regard. I mean, speaking of the Beyonce film, we had Barbenheimer in theaters during the summer. And with the Beyonce film, what do we even call this? Like, Beyonce or <laughs> Baylor? <laughs> what do you well, think? I mean, it's not a showdown because, you know, Beyonce showed up at the AMC Grove in, in L.A. to the premiere of, of the red carpet right, premiere of Taylor's film. Right. So they're supporting Unity. each other. But, yeah. but I do think that this is a, a kind of new, I, I feel like it's an arms race for like what is going to happen in movie theaters and how people are, are supposed to go to movie theaters. And I think that's what is challenging to me about this is that I don't know what this means for a lot of the other films that have to find their way in the I middle know. of this. The stadiums now are moving to the movie theaters and that is uh, quite strange quite strange that is npr's Bilal Qureshi thank you so much Bilal thank you also you can find his essay on npr.org thank you for listening to all things considered from npr news 
Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. And from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. This is 90.9 WBUR, 62 degrees in the Boston area, a beautiful day coming to an end, some decent weather ahead for the weekend too. Overnight tonight on the chilly side, about 45 for a low. Look for partly sunny skies tomorrow and Sunday. For the perfect spot to host your next event, Discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Booking now for holiday celebrations and winter events, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Congressman Jim Jordan gets the nomination to be the next Speaker of the House, but the chaos isn't quite over. Dozens of Republicans say they have no intention of voting for him. A House in disarray coming up on this Friday, October 13th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. In the Middle East, at least 24 Americans have died in the conflict between Israel and the Hamas militants in Gaza. Others are missing. We'll speak to some of the family members and friends. Also, tomorrow, much of the U.S. will get at least a partial view of the solar eclipse called the Ring of Fire. I think if for anyone who observes a total solar eclipse in person, your life is going to be changed. Coming up, where and how to see the eclipse. It's 501. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Rights groups are condemning the Israeli army announcement that civilians in Gaza City should quickly relocate to the south. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports Israel says it's sensitive to its humanitarian obligations. The initial directive from the military gave civilians in Gaza just 24 hours to head south, which drew a swift response from Human Rights Watch. Senior legal adviser Clyde Baldwin said in a statement that, quote, ordering a million people in Gaza to evacuate when there's no safe place to go is not an effective warning. He added that the roads are rubble, fuel is scarce, and the main hospital is in the evacuation zone. An Israeli brigadier general told reporters that the hospital wouldn't be included in the order, and Israel agrees that a mass evacuation will take time. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Jerusalem. President Biden again reiterated his support for Israel following the Hamas attack that killed more than 1,000 people, including at least 27 Americans. When we're speaking in Philadelphia, the president said, it's also a priority for me to urgently address the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Biden saying he'll be working with other countries and the U.N. on the growing crisis faced by civilians on both sides. In my direction 
Our teams are working in the region, including communicating directly with the governments of Israel, Egypt, Jordan, and other Arab nations and the United Nations to surge support and humanitarian consequences for Hamas' attack to help Israel. Biden says he spent more than an hour speaking with family members of 14 Americans unaccounted for in Israel after the attack. He said he gave them his personal commitment to do everything possible to secure the release of any U.S. hostages held by Hamas. Supporters of the imprisoned Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny say three of his lawyers have been detained. NPR's Philip Reeves says it comes as the Kremlin's critics face increasing pressure. Alexei Navalny is internationally recognized as one of President Vladimir Putin's fiercest opponents. He's serving 19 years in prison on extremism charges that he says were politically motivated. His supporters say authorities have now targeted three of his lawyers by raiding their homes and detaining them as suspects. They say this is an attempt to completely isolate Navalny by depriving him of legal support. Navalny is currently in a penal colony, but is soon to be transferred to an even harsher prison. The Kremlin's crackdown on its opponents has intensified since the war in Ukraine began, tactics that Navalny compares with the Soviet-era repression of dissidents. Philip Reeves, NPR News. GOP hardliner Jim Jordan has won his party's nomination to be Speaker of the House, though whether you can actually get the votes needed in the full chamber remains to be seen. While Jordan has been backed by former President Trump, other Republicans have said they won't support him. House needs a new Speaker in order to get back to doing its work after ousting Kevin McCarthy last week. A mixed close on Wall Street. The Dow is up 39 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Security is tight around local temples as the Palestinian terrorist group Hamas calls for worldwide demonstrations of support. Law enforcement here says there are no credible threats. The Anti-Defamation League is urging members of the Jewish community to remain vigilant. Peggy, uh, Peggy Shuker of the League's New England branch has some advice for anyone who encounters a protester. Avoid confrontation. Don't confront individuals protesting, distributing propaganda, conducting banner drops, or spraying or stenciling graffiti. Assume every interaction may be recorded. Rabbi Emeritus Carl Perkins at the Temple Aliyah in Needham says that his community is grateful for expressions of support. President Biden and other leaders in the country have expressed really a full-throated understanding of the dastardly nature of this this series of attacks. But at the same time, this has also generated um, anti-Semitism. Police in several communities have officers stationed outside religious centers as a precaution. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell and her counterparts in two dozen states are urging the U.S. Supreme Court to allow for expanded access to the abortion medication mifepristone. A lower court had ruled against broader access. The attorneys general argued the decision that prevents the FDA from increasing access could be devastating to health care systems and patients, especially those in low-income and underserved communities. And the estate of an autistic boy who died of starvation after he was returned to his father's custody is suing the Department of Children and Families. 14-year-old David Allman died three years ago. He was found unresponsive in the one-bedroom apartment in Fall River he shared with his two brothers, their father and the father's girlfriend. The lawsuit claims that caseworkers and their supervisors returned the children despite the father telling them he could not provide appropriate care. The Fall River School District is also named in the suit. A state investigation concluded there was multi-system failure. 
62 degrees now in the Boston area. Overnight tonight on the chilly side, about 45 for a low. May have winds picking up tonight. And then for tomorrow, sunny skies. Some clouds moving in during the day, though. Breezy, temperatures about 63. Sunday should be partly sunny with highs about 62 tops. It is 62 still in Boston. The time is 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. In a closed-door vote today, Republicans in the House nominated Jim Jordan to be Speaker. Jordan is chairman of the House Judiciary Committee and has been endorsed by former President Trump. Now, of course, even with this nomination in place, the path to actually electing Jordan as the Speaker remains murky. It's just the latest twist in a dramatic week and a half for House Republicans who saw Speaker Kevin McCarthy ousted and then could not unify behind their first nominee to replace him, Steve Scalise. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh has been following all of this from the Capitol and joins us now. Hi, Deirdre. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so what exactly is the latest at this point? So as you said, Jordan won the internal House Republican conference vote. Uh, he he beat out Austin uh, Scott, who's a Georgia Republican, who was trying to uh, make a race against Jordan to get the nomination. Jordan only bested out Austin Scott, who just entered the race this afternoon, kind of as a surprise, by mm-hmm. about 40 votes. Wow. And even Jordan's backers said that tally was pretty low, as you noted, uh, whoever it needs to be elected by the uh, elected speaker by the full house needs 217 votes. Right. So House Republicans took a second ballot and the second ballot question was will you vote for Jordan on the floor? He won again, but he was still more than 60 votes short of being able to w- be elected by the full house of representatives. So House Republicans were essentially told to go home for the weekend. They're going to regroup on Monday and have another sort of internal House Republican meeting. There could be a vote on the floor as soon as Monday, but it's seems sort of uh, unclear. I mean, what House Republicans really want to avoid is another embarrassing scene like we saw in January where it took four days and 15 ballots to elect Kevin McCarthy as speaker. Some Jordan supporters think that moving to the floor would put a lot of pressure on some of the Republican holdouts because President Trump, as you said, endorsed, former President Trump, endorsed Jim Jordan. And they think if they are forced to vote in public on the floor, they will feel pressure Mm. to get behind Jordan. But you can see just from the folks coming out of the meeting, there is still a lot of tension, division, and a lot of members just not ready to get behind Jordan. Right. Okay. So the saga continues. Now, you talk about a floor vote. This is a job that needs to be confirmed by a majority vote on the House floor. Can you just explain the process a little bit more for us? Right. So whoever is elected by the full House needs a majority of a president voting. That number right now is 217. There are 221 House Republicans. If they all show up to vote, the nominee can only lose a handful. There's way more than a handful that have still voted against Jordan. Uh, He would need to flip a lot of votes. Back in January, Kevin McCarthy went to the floor with 188 votes. And so it took him a while to get to the number he needed to be elected. And McCarthy said today he thinks Jordan can get there and he thinks that they can do some work to get there. He sort of downplayed Jordan's much lower number and thought he could win on the floor. But, you know, we've seen this happen two votes in a row, right? Scalise couldn't get the number. 
and they put the guy who lost against him up and he still can't get the number. Uh, I think there's still a lot of confusion about how they're going to be able to get there. Okay, and tell us a little more about Jim Jordan. Who is he? He's a conservative firebrand. He's really had a political evolution. He's been in the House for about 15 years. He started out as the chair of this conservative group known as the Republican Study Committee, and basically it was formed to sort of move the leadership of the House of Representatives to the right. He had a lot of very public battles with his Ohio colleague who was speaker at the time, John Boehner. And Boehner dubbed Jordan as a legislative terrorist. So he's really come to show where the Republican Party has moved, much more conservative. Uh, He's obviously endorsed by Trump, and he was one of many Republicans to vote against the 2020 certification. That is NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Thank you so much, Deirdre. Thanks, Elsa. Among those killed in Israel and Gaza are at least 27 Americans. 14 Americans are unaccounted for, a small number of whom are believed to now be hostages of Hamas in Gaza. NPR's Laurel Walmsley spoke to families and friends of those searching for and mourning their loved ones. As the bomb sirens went off in Jerusalem last Saturday, Rachel Goldberg woke her daughters and they all hustled into their apartment's safe room. She turned on her phone, which she normally keeps off on the Sabbath and there were two text messages from her son, Hirsch Goldberg Pullen. The first one said, I love you, and the next one said, I'm sorry. Through her son's friend, she learned that Hirsch, who was born and spent his early years in California, had been at a techno music festival in southern Israel, where reports were emerging of hundreds of young people killed or taken hostage. She didn't know if Hirsch was alive or dead. Then the family received a photo a friend had seen on social media, taken in a bomb shelter near the rave, and Hirsch was in it. With the help of friends, they figured out the identities of others in the photo and made contact with three people who survived the attack in the shelter with Hirsch and his friend Honor Shapira, who told the family what had happened. And what we were told is the terrorists were throwing in hand grenades and Honor at the doorway was picking them up and throwing them back out. Some of them did get in and those exploded. And then they came in with machine gun fire just spraying the room of these, you know, barefoot, crunchy granola hippies who were all defenseless. It was shooting fish in a barrel, just a massacre. The Hamas militants asked for those who could stand to stand, and Hirsch did. Witnesses said Hirsch's arm below his elbow had been blown off, and he'd made a tourniquet out of a shirt. The attackers put Hirsch and two other young men in a pickup truck and drove them toward the border with Gaza. And the police were able to tell us the last place that they saw Hirsch's cell phone was just at the border with Gaza. And that's the last we've heard of him. A funeral was held in Jerusalem today for Honor Shapira. Goldberg says the U.S. Embassy has been extremely supportive, and President Biden held a call today with the family members of the Americans unaccounted for. Also among the missing are Yudit and Natalie Ra'anen, a mother and daughter from Evanston, Illinois. Natalie recently graduated from high school, and they were in Israel to spend the Jewish holidays with Yudit's mother. Rabbi Dov Hillel Klein of Chabad of Evanston knows Yudit well. Yudit is such a kind, caring, giving person. You know, when she walks into the room, her eyes just light up. She wears her soul on her eyes. Klein says the last the Ra'anans were heard from was a text from Natalie to her father, saying they were holed up in a bomb shelter about a mile from the Gaza border. Hamas militants were going house to house, killing people. The assumption is, is that they broke into that bomb shelter and took them as hostages. For some families, the worst has already come to pass. Danielle Bensignor, 34, was also at the music festival, says her aunt, Clara Bensignor. Danielle grew up in Los Angeles and became a nurse, and a few years ago moved to Israel, near Haifa, to take care of her parents. She loved music. She loved dancing. She loved the nature. She loved life. She loved people. 
she was a very special girl. For days, the family didn't know what had happened to Danielle. Finally, they found a body. They couldn't go in the field because there was bombing. And finally, they got to her. It was four days later. The family held a funeral for Danielle, and now they sit Shiva for seven days at her house until the burial. She was part of us, and she was like a flower blooming. And they took our flower. Danielle Ben-Senor went to Israel to nurse her parents. But now, as the war intensifies, her parents are among many who will mourn their children. Laurel Wamsley, NPR News. On Saturday, the moon will pass between the sun and earth, creating a solar eclipse. Much of the U.S. will get partial views, but the prime view will be reserved for people living in a sliver of the U.S. spanning eight states from Oregon to Texas. Here's NPR's Regina Barber with more. This weekend's solar eclipse is called the Ring of Fire, which Samaya Farid, a solar astrophysicist, says happens because... The moon doesn't orbit the earth in a perfect circle. It's an ellipse. So sometimes it's closer and sometimes it's further away. When it's a little bit further away and cannot block out completely the sun's surface, uh, we see a ring of fire effect, and those are called annular eclipses. Remember, an annular eclipse is not safe to look at with the naked eye because even though the moon is blocking most of the sun... There's still a lot of light coming through from the sun that it will damage your eyes if you look at it with your bare eye. So please make sure you're wearing eclipse glasses or using a solar filter when viewing the sun. The only solar eclipse that's safe to watch without special eye protection is a total eclipse, when the moon fully blocks the sun's body and we can briefly see the faint but beautiful solar corona. The next total eclipse across the U.S. takes place next April. After these two, people in the U.S. won't be treated with another solar eclipse for 20 years. And if you ask Fareed, it is a treat to see one. I think it's for anyone who observes a total solar eclipse in person, your life is going to be changed. <laughs> Fareed isn't alone. Many people book special trips to experience solar eclipses. And for the Diné or Navajo people, solar eclipses are part of a long sacred tradition. We see the sun as our deity. We call it Johanna'e. And our moon, we see it as another being. So for us, the significance of um, eclipses in general is that one of the two beings in the sky is dying and being reborn. And so whenever we have eclipses, those are just very significant moments. That's Cody Cly, a Diné PhD student studying astrophysics. He traveled from Texas to Utah to act as a cultural expert for fellow scientists who plan to live stream the eclipse. It's important to me significantly is because, you know, it, it's helping me reconnect with my roots. For me, I've come so far from, you know, just growing up and living under reservation to just going into grad school, something I thought I'd never do, and doing, you know, astrophysics, you know, this is just stuff I dreamed about. The solar eclipse is set to traverse directly over the Navajo Nation, where Clay grew up. At that time, many Diné people will go indoors and reflect or pray. Regina Barber, NPR News.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Friday afternoon. Israel has told the population of northern Gaza to evacuate to the south because it may launch a ground invasion. How one million people are heeding the warning or not. Coming up, this is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at OceanStateJobLot.com. And Brookwood School with Jessica Leahy, author of The Gift of Failure, speaking in the 4 to 14 speaker series on October 24th. Tickets at brookwood.edu. The final trading day of the week on Wall Street was mixed. The Dow pulled in a little more than a tenth of a percent. S&P lost a half percent, and the Nasdaq fell about one and a quarter percent. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Renewal by Anderson, a full-service window and door replacement company supporting the American Cancer Society. Learn more at RenewalByAndersonCares.com. And Fresh City Kitchen, now accepting orders and helping you plan for your holiday catering needs. Learn more at FreshCityKitchen.com. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Got a beautiful evening coming up and some pretty decent weather over the weekend, certainly feeling like fall. On the chilly side tonight, 45 for a low. Tomorrow may have the winds picking up even more sunshine, clouds moving in during the day, about 63 degrees. Then Sunday should bring clouds and sunshine both, about 62 tops. 61 now in Boston at 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. It's been nearly one week since Hamas launched its attack on Israeli territory, killing more than 1,300 people and kidnapping some 150 others. Israel has responded with airstrikes that have already leveled parts of the Gaza Strip and displaced hundreds of thousands of Palestinians. All of Gaza's border crossings are closed, leaving civilians trapped inside without continuing access to food, water, electricity, and fuel. The West Bank is different, and our next guest is there. Dr. Mustafa Barghouti is a medical doctor and general secretary of the Palestinian National Initiative, a political party in the occupied West Bank, and he joins us from Ramallah. Welcome to All Things Considered. Yes, hello. You are geographically not far from Gaza in the West Bank, but you are a world away in the experience. I mean, it's maybe a 60-mile distance. What are you hearing from people who you know living in Gaza today? Have you been able to reach people? Yes, we are, of course, following the matter because we have many doctors and nurses who are working there in our organization, Palestinian Medical Relief Society. And uh, what we hear from them is horrifying because uh, the Gaza Strip, the 2.3 million people, are now under total siege by Israel. They are depriving people from water, electricity, 
<clears throat> food and even medicines. Uh, nobody can get to Gaza. Uh, nothing can be transported to Gaza. We have lots of supplies waiting even on the Egyptian side, but Israel uh, bombarded the, the entrance to, to Palestine and uh, the, the passage was bombarded and Israel made it very clear that they would not allow anything into, into Gaza. What do the doctors tell you about their medical supplies? Do they have bandages? Do they have medicines? Do they have the basic necessities to treat injured people? They are saying, they told us that the whole medical system is about to collapse. We received uh, panic calls from uh, patients with uh, kidney problems who are going to die because there is no access to kidney dialysis. Oh, so beyond acute injuries, people with basic medical needs that need ongoing treatment can't get it. Exactly, and uh, because of so many injuries and so many people shot by Israeli airstrikes, the whole system is collapsing. But uh, and and uh, you have to add to the fact that there is siege is the fact that Israel is conducting indiscriminate airstrikes. These are not just bombarding like certain places or houses or institutions. They're bombarding everything: universities, schools clinics, hospitals. Many hospitals have already been evacuated because they were bombarded by airstrikes. They are <clears throat> demolishing everything in Gaza down to earth. Can I just ask, you are, as I mentioned, both a medical doctor and a politician. And, and in a moment, I want to ask about your view as a politician. But if you were in Gaza right now as a medical doctor with such overwhelming need, what would you be doing? What would your approach be? I think uh, my approach would be to try to help people as much as I can, to help injured people overcome the injuries. You know, helping people survive will be the first goal. The second goal would be to try as much as we can to stay in Gaza and help the people who need us. Because so many old people, so many children, so many families, so many women are unable to move. Uh, and uh, the roads are destroyed, the streets are destroyed, the pipelines are destroyed, the infrastructure is totally destroyed. It's a matter, I mean, it's, it's, it's really awful. And when I talk to our people there, my heart breaks down because yeah. we are distant from them. We don't know how to help them. I was there in Gaza in 2014 when the war broke out, but people tell me it's nothing to be compared with now. It's total and complete demolishing of everything. Total and complete cleansing of everything. And so is it a feeling of guilt, anger? I mean, when you have conversations with, with your neighbors, with your friends, with people who live around you there in Ramallah, what do people say? Frustration, anger, and fear. That if, if the world, and especially the United States, allows Israel, to conduct ethnic cleansing in Gaza, people are feeling the fear that this will come to the West Bank as well. And that uh, this government in Israel, which is the most extreme ever, is capable of doing anything. If they allow, and, and, and mind you, I don't, I don't justify killing any civilian, whether Israeli or Palestinian, but what's happening now, what is going to happen is the worst crime ever of ethnically cleansing a whole population. Does that change your underlying philosophy? I mean, you've spent your whole life saying nonviolence is the correct approach. To see this happen now, does it fundamentally change the way you view the world? No. 
As much as nothing changed my views when a sniper, an Israeli sniper, shot me twice with live ammunition when I was treating an injured person, this did not change my opinion. I still carry the shrapnels, but I carry in myself the same deep belief in not only in nonviolence, but in justice as well. And that's why I'm so angry now. I am so angry because I never thought in my whole life that I will see, I will witness another act of ethnic cleansing in the 21st century. And what worries me most is that if this continues and if the United States allows this to happen, we will end up in a situation where the whole world, the people of the world, will stop believing that there is something called international law. Dr. Barghouti, if I may ask about the term ethnic cleansing, which you've used several times, according to the UN, the term has not legally been defined and is not recognized as a crime under international law. Tell me why you choose to use it in this instance. Because that's what happened to Palestinians in 1948 when Israel conducted, and I have to say that, 52 massacres against Palestinians and erased to, to earth, erased completely 522 communities. 72% of the people in Gaza today are refugees who lost their homes and their communities back in 1948. I mean, their grandfathers and fathers. Now these are the sons of these refugees who were expelled from their country. And now they are trying to repeat the same thing with the people in Gaza. And ethnic cleansing is our crime, in my opinion. Do you see any potential for talks about humanitarian corridors? It all in the, it's all in the hands of the United States now. Israel would not listen to any country but the United States. And the only country that has that leverage to tell Israel enough is enough and allow human beings to receive humanitarian aid is the United States. So it is the responsibility of Mr. Biden and Mr. Blinken. Dr. Mustafa Barghouti is an activist and member of the Palestinian National Initiative speaking with us from Ramallah in the West Bank. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. You take care. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR, a rabbi from the largest temple in Boston speaks to us about bringing Israelis and Palestinians together and supporting one another during conflict. Listen again when you wake up tomorrow. Overnight tonight, temperatures about 45 degrees should be clear and dry. No rain likely over the weekend. Partly sunny skies, more clouds than sun tomorrow afternoon, rising to about the low 60s. And then partial sunshine on Sunday as well. A stiff breeze, though. Highs right about 60 degrees. 60 on the nose now in the Boston area. The time is 530.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Book Festival, happening in Copley Square tomorrow. Fun for all ages, and it's free. Details at bostonbookfest.org. Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And MIT Museum, featuring freshly installed galleries and a lineup of dynamic programs and events that will feed your curiosity. Plan your visit today. Elena Kostyuchenko recalls the moment she realized she was being lied to by Russian state media. I read the Anna Politkovskaya's article about cleansing of Chechen village by Russian soldiers. I was shocked because it appeared that television lied to me. Her memoir, I Love Russia, and all the latest news Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Israel demanded some one million civilians evacuate northern Gaza for their own safety ahead of a likely incursion in its war against Hamas militants. Palestinians have begun a mass exodus toward the southern part of the besieged territory, even as Hamas dismissed the order as a ploy. The situation in Gaza is a humanitarian crisis for more than two million people, many of whom are effectively trapped in the blockaded territory. After meeting with Saudi and other Arab leaders today, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said Israel will do all it can to avoid civilian casualties. We continue to discuss with Israel the importance of taking every possible precaution to avoid harming civilians. We recognize that many Palestinian families in Gaza are suffering through no fault of their own, and the Palestinian civilians have lost their lives. Lincoln called Israel's response to the attack by Hamas not retaliation, but rather defending the lives of its people. Ukrainians' leaders are seeking to tie Hamas militants to Russia's Kremlin, calling them terrorists and saying the West must unite against them. NPR's Joanna Kakissis has more. Speaking via video link to leaders in Northern Europe, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said Europe must cooperate more closely to tackle aggression by hostile states and terrorists. Like... Russia, like Hamas, like other terrorists and free nations need a really full-scale defense and one that can be maintained as long as needed. Ukraine's two main allies, the U.S. and the European Union, both strongly support Israel. There is concern in Ukraine that those allies will get distracted by the war there. Russia, meanwhile, has ties to Israel's enemy, Iran, which is supplying Russia with weapons. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kyiv. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Joint Base Cape Cod in Bourne is considering a plan to build affordable housing on 600 acres of land on a military reservation. The base says the proposal is in its early stages, but would help the state deal with a housing crisis. A spokesman says it's intended to help meet Governor Maura Healey's housing priorities while still being compatible with military operations at Joint Base Cape Cod. The first woman to lead the Massachusetts AFL-CIO has started on the job. Union delegates this week elected Chrissy Lynch as the local's president. Lynch says as more women take on leadership roles, they'll make issues such as child care a priority. She says unions are growing, but they need to expand more. We hear a lot about a worker shortage. Uh, My response is that there are plenty of working age people in Massachusetts. What there is a shortage of is good union jobs that actually pay the bills. 
Lynch takes over from Steve Tolman, who was the union president for more than a decade. Football fans are being urged to take the train to the December Army-Navy football game at Gillette Stadium. This is the first time the tradition will be held in Foxborough. There will be three special round-trip commuter trains from Boston and two from Providence. Tickets go on sale Monday. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, covering Metro Boston windows for over 30 years with shades, blinds, draperies, and more. Innuendo's design team in Natick and Innuendo.com. And Science Club for Girls, growing the 4% of black and Latina female scientists and engineers and transforming the face of STEM. Donate at scienceclubforgirls.org. It's 60 degrees in Boston, feeling kind of like mid-October should feel. Tonight, down to 45 degrees, a clear and dry and breezy night. And for tomorrow, partly sunny skies, increasing clouds as day continues, rising only to the low 60s. Partial sunshine on Sunday, too, should be breezy, with temperatures just about 60. This is WBUR. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. There's been a dramatic turn today in the Hamas-Israel conflict. Israel has ordered effectively half the population of Gaza to flee their homes. At the same time, many people in Israel are deciding to leave, and the U.S. is chartering flights for Americans. And all of this is happening under continued Israeli bombardment and Palestinian rocket fire. NPR's Daniel Estrin brings us the stories of people leaving their homes. Gaza woke up to the news that Israel's military had ordered all residents of Gaza City and northern Gaza to leave for southern Gaza. In all of the wars Israel and Hamas have fought over the years, never has there been such an order. Israeli military spokesman Daniel Hagari. They knew that this would happen as a result of their brutal and ruthless massacre in Israel. We are not fighting the people of Gaza, the civilians, the residents. We are fighting the terrorist organization Hamas. Israel's military says it cannot guarantee the safety of people who remain. This evacuation order applies to more than a million people. NPR's producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, left with his family to southern Gaza and told me he saw families packed 9 or 11 to a car and those who couldn't afford the transportation left on foot. It's a catastrophe. There is people, okay, who walked 45 kilometers on foot. Families. But NPR's longtime driver in Gaza, Mohammed Dramli, was reluctant to leave. I reached him on the phone. His first grader, Aboud, was with him. 
Then Dreamly put his dad on the phone, who said he didn't want to go anywhere. I'm not with Hamas, I'm just a human being, he said. I'd rather die at home. But the kids, I told him. If you stay, that means your grandkids will stay. Think about it, think about it, I told him. But the thing is, where is half of Gaza's crowded population supposed to go? Lynn Hastings is the UN's top humanitarian chief here. She told me the UN is already sheltering 300,000 Palestinians, and their shelters could run out of food and water in days. There is absolutely no possibility of the United Nations to take in one million people who are fleeing from the north. We simply just do not have the infrastructure or the capacity. Egypt also shares a border with Gaza, but it's keeping it closed now. Egypt has shown no desire to host half of Gaza as refugees. In Israel, there are also people who want to leave, and unlike in Gaza, they can. At Israel's international airport, embassies have set up booths and card tables, organizing charter flights to help their citizens leave, including the U.S. Embassy. All American carriers have canceled flights to and from Israel. Jessica Shamriz is leaving her Israeli husband behind to take care of his parents, while she goes with her two kids to her family in Colorado. How are you feeling now? Um, stressed, just haven't eaten in a while. We feel safe in Tel Aviv, so it's really confusing when my family is panicking and telling us to get out as fast as we can to come to an airport without a flight. My family is just really panicked because we had family in the Holocaust that didn't get out. They chose to stay, and my family is reliving that trauma, so we're trying to not have happen what happened. After I leave the airport, NPR's Gaza driver, Mohammed Dramley, calls me. He and his family were finally on the road, headed south, when something happened. Our longtime driver in Gaza just called me and said that his dad went out of the car, said, I've changed my mind, I'm going back home, took a car and went home. Now our driver is just hasn't... Has, has no idea what to do. He's in the middle of the streets. The roads are full of cars of people fleeing, 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 and his dad got cold feet. He has no idea what to do. I'm going to call our former... I call NPR's former producer, Abu Bakr Bashir, who now lives in the UK. I just talked to um, Muhammad. Muhammad is saying, I'm exhausted, I'm exhausted, I'm exhausted. I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do. He's in the middle of the street. I told him I'd call you. Okay. Well, the other thing is, I've, I also asked other friends of mine and, and family and cousins to move to the south. One of my cousins, actually, his son was injured, okay, was hit. We didn't know how badly. Oh, my goodness. So the thing is, moving around with a car isn't safe either. I hope people leave, but I, I just cannot tell them to leave and they get hit while trying to leave. You know what I mean? By the end of the day, our Gaza driver calls with good news. His dad has finally agreed to evacuate with the family to southern Gaza. They're staying with another family. Can you finally relax a little bit, I ask him? He says, oh, there's no relaxation. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv.
There's been a scoring spree five games into the NFL season. Thanks in part to the Miami Dolphins, who are assembling a team with the fastest players available and leaving their opponents in the dust. Devon Achan will take it all the way. 76 yards for a Dolphins touchdown. My goodness. The Miami Dolphins have literally world-class sprinters, uh, several of them on their team, but also speed before the snap. These teams use surprise to their advantage. That's Nate Tice. He's a host for the Athletic Football Show. So far, the Dolphins have been able to utilize all that speed with some innovative formations on the field. Simply tweaking how the players line up before the ball is snapped, that is causing the opposing team lots of trouble and allowing these quick players to get wide open. Here's Nate Tice again. That sounds so simple, but it is blowing defense's brains because they're just like, oh my God, we haven't seen that. The Dolphins and other teams now are leaning into more than ever before. And it's really, really cool just to see. It's a, it's a form of creativity. Mike McDaniel is leading the revolution in Miami. This is his second year in charge, and Coach McDaniel is one of the youngest in the NFL at the age of 40. He's also a member of what's known as the Shanahan Coaching Tree, a group of the best offensive-minded coaches who've learned their craft from San Francisco head coach Kyle Shanahan. Nate Tice says these millennial coaches aren't afraid to try something different. I think a lot of these young coaches that have been exposed to video games, that watch college football all the time, that are willing to just expand their their brains. It's a result of asking why or what would happen if I did this. It's hard to argue with their results so far. The Dolphins are averaging 36 points per game and rushing for the most yards in the league. And Tice says the Dolphins are just fun to watch. I've been kind of comparing it to taking like a, a cheeseburger at a like a fusion restaurant. You're like, ooh, is that peanut butter? Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. That's kind of what the Dolphins are doing. It's not new, but it's kind of just a new twist on it. If you want to see the new twist for yourself, Sunday should be a good opportunity. The Dolphins host the winless Carolina Panthers in Miami. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. When it comes to how Americans are feeling about the war between Israel and Hamas, a new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll finds they are broadly supportive of Israel. It also found notable generational and racial divides. NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro has been going through the data. Hey, Domenico. Hey, Ari. What did the survey show about Americans' attitudes about the war? Well, we found that two-thirds want a strong public show of support by the U.S. government for Israel on so many political questions. You know, we talk about a political divide, but in this, there really isn't a very big one here. You know, big majorities of Democrats and Republicans want the same thing. Independents are a little more lukewarm, with about a third saying that the U.S. should do or say nothing. But the real split here is by age and by race. Younger Americans, those under 45, much less likely to say that they want a strong show of of support publicly from the government for Israel. Just 48% said that compared to 78% of people 45 or older. We saw that the older people were, the more they wanted that support for Israel. And the reverse was also true. You know, when it comes to race, 72% of whites want that strong show of support, but just 51% of non-whites said the same. Okay, so not much of a difference by party on this question, but 
Younger voters and non-white voters are key parts of the Democratic base. Mm -hmm. Has that changed how the Democratic Party has approached Israeli-Palestinian tensions over the years? Well, it's interesting because for the first time this year, Gallup found that Democrats' sympathies lie more with Palestinians than with Israel, and that was driven by younger voters. Of course, this conflict isn't simply about Israelis and Palestinians, but heinous acts committed by a terrorist group embedded in a heavily Palestinian area. And how do Americans feel about Israel's response to this attack from Hamas? Well, it's early, but so far a plurality, 44% think Israel's response has been appropriate. About a quarter each, though, think that their response has either been too much or too little. And we're seeing some familiar divides on this, with some Democratic-leaning groups like those who live in big cities and younger voters much more likely to say that the response has been too much as compared to Republican-leaning groups like white men without college degrees and white evangelical Christians who are more likely to say that it's been too little. But again, we're still in the very early days of this, so a lot can change on this question. But one thing that stood out is that eight in 10 people in the poll said that they're worried about this spreading to a broader regional conflict. What do people say in the poll about how President Biden is handling all of this? Well, President Biden has voiced pretty full-throated support of Israel, arguably more than any past president that we've seen recently. But uh, even though broad majorities say that that that's what they want. Biden is not benefiting politically here at all. 52% say that they disapprove of his handling of the situation, which, by the way, reflects his overall approval rating because 52% also say they disapprove of the job he's doing overall. So clearly what we're really seeing is that the political divide, you're not able to break through that simply by doing something that most people are saying that they want, at least to this point. You know, seven in 10 people say that they're paying attention. So a lot of this could change going forward. And Piero's Domenico Montanaro, thank you. Hey, you're welcome. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. Endless Energy, offering home assessments for energy-efficient air conditioning and heating. Learn about rebates exclusive to Massachusetts residents at goendlessenergy.com. And the Umbrella Arts Center, presenting Lizzie. Lizzie Borden finally gets her say in this ghost story meets rock concert musical, now through November 5th. More at theumbrellaarts.org. Keep listening to 90.9 WBUR. In about 15 minutes, we'll hear what it's like right now for residents of Gaza, who Israel is told to leave their homes before a possible Israeli ground invasion. That's one million people. And start your weekend tomorrow with 90.9 WBUR. We'll have updates on the war between Israelis and Hamas, the militant group. Also, more on the vote on the Speaker of the U.S. House. That and much more tomorrow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the 58th annual Head of the Charles Regatta, presented by BNY Mellon. See over 12,000 world-class rowers compete.
October 20th to 22nd, free at Herder Park and Riverbend Park, sponsored by Vineyard Vines and Senegenics. Visit hocr.org for more information. And Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go. On this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, actor John Goodman explains how he can play both lovable heroes and absolute lunatics. If you're cuddly and adorable, there's got to be a reason why, and it's usually filthy. <laughs> really? Uh, <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. Join us for more secrets from the Actors Studio, plus conversations with journalists Bob Woodruff, Jenny Slate, and Stuart Copeland. That's this week's News Quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Ecuador was one of the most peaceful countries in South America until international drug traffickers moved in. Together with local gangs, the cartels have turned Ecuador into a hub for transporting cocaine to Europe and the U.S. Violent gangs now control many cities. NPR's Kerry Khan takes us to one of them ahead of this weekend's elections. That's the school siren. Recess is now over and students line up in the school patio here in Duran, a tough town across the river from Ecuador's large Pacific port city, Guayaquil. Arms and hands up, shouts an instructor, taking the students through morning stretches. The school, which NPR is not identifying for safety reasons, is the only refuge many kids have in this working-class city of 300,000, says teacher Maria. NPR is not using her full name either. She fears retribution from gangs. This is like living in a war zone, she says. Violence is out of control and we're terrified, she adds. More than 220 killings have happened so far this year in Duran many bodies left on the street by the school. One teen told her he watched his mom almost get shot, but the assailants gun jammed. Another parent just told her the family was going into hiding after they received a threatening letter. Y junto a esa hoja, le enviaron dos balas. It was delivered dos with balas. two bullets. The police do nothing, she says. Nos damos cuenta que estamos en tal indefensión. Look, que they can't even protect the mayor. How are they supposed to protect us, she asks. On his first day in office, Duran's mayor was nearly assassinated. He changes where he sleeps every night as well as his phone number. The previous mayor was just released by kidnappers last weekend, and two city officials have been killed in the last two months. Billy Navarrete, a local human rights advocate, says Duran is in the hands of the gangs. Porque no hay ninguna presencia del Estado. First off, he says, because the government does nothing to stop them. Then there's Duran's favorable geography. The city sits on the banks of a confluence of rivers around one of Ecuador's busiest ports. Large warehouses storing merchandise to ship out are located here. Few are inspected, he says. Padre nuestro que estás en el cielo, santificado sea tu nombre. The Avilis family sits outside a Duran church as a man recites the rosary over a loudspeaker. Angelica Aviles says she just sent her son to live with a relative in another city. She was afraid he would be recruited into a gang. While we keep working, they just steal, she says, talking about the local gangs who extort businesses. 
Avila says she's not interested in this weekend's upcoming presidential election. She hasn't heard either candidate explain well how they'll combat Ecuador's crime. The race pits a young leftist lawmaker against an heir to the country's richest banana exporter. Back at the Duran school where kids are playing basketball, teacher Maria says she's not thrilled with the presidential choices either. And the worst of all is and she says her biggest fear now is that everyone is just getting too used to living with the violence and the fear. Carrie Khan, NPR News, Durlan, Ecuador. It was a summer of celebrations and a summer of worry for hip-hop. The celebrations were for the 50th birthday of the culture that has become dominant in modern music. The worry was that no hip-hop songs or albums topped the Billboard charts by mid-year for the first time since 1993. Now, Doja Cat and others have scored number one hits since then. But speculation about hip-hop's possible decline during its golden anniversary remains hard to shake in the rap business. It was on some minds at the BET Hip Hop Awards in Atlanta, as NPR's Rodney Carmichael reports. Where does hip hop live in 2023? Hip hop lives, oh my gosh, everywhere. Everywhere, according to rapper Flo Millie. Even on the red carpet of the BET Hip Hop Awards, where I posed the question to her and a bunch of other artists, like Foggy Raw and Vic Mensa. Hip hop lives in our stories. It honestly lives wherever we live and it dies with us. It definitely lives inside of you, though. It's like a spirit, like it just, you have it or you don't have it. But there's one place the spirit of hip-hop was conspicuously missing earlier this year. What about the Billboard charts? The Billboard charts? I mean, they, they where they at, you know? <laughs> For seven years and running, rap has been the country's most consumed genre, along with R&B, which the music industry tracks together. And it still is. But the first six months of 2023 went by without rap scoring any number one songs or albums on the Billboard Hot 100 or Billboard 200 charts. Yikes, we gotta do better, hip-hop. That's DJ Drama, the DJ and record exec whose mixtapes helped Atlanta emerge as rap's new capital city years ago. Later that night, he welcomed a few hometown stars on stage. Now we could not rap 20 years of trap music. Yeah. We in the A-Town, it's the king. But drama's also hip to the fact that some of the biggest songs in 2023 have come from a different southern music capital, Nashville. Country music is on our Shout out to my guy Morgan Wallen. He's shouting out the country star who topped the charts this summer. But a lot of hip-hop heads couldn't care less about the charts. First of all, hip-hop is not on the decline. Chuck Creekmer, known as Jigsaw the co-founder of allhiphop.com. It is the most influential culture we have right now. Anyone trying to represent that it's on the decline, I would say is some sort of, uh, that's just a narrative that they're pushing so that it might in fact decline. To put the metrics in context, I hit up Jamie Markinette, the senior director of Music Insights at Luminate, the company that provides data to Billboard. So the overall market share for the R&B hip-hop genre at the end of June this year, compared to the first half of last year, was down 0.9% during that time. 0.9%? As in less than 1%? Now, Mark Annette also told me it's still number one in terms of overall consumption on top of rock, pop, and country. So this was much ado about nothing? One of the numbers that we look at is the total industry pace as well, right? And so 
for the R&B hip hop genre this year, it hasn't kept up the same pace as the industry. After years of rap sales being undervalued due to disproportionate bootlegging and illegal downloading, the growth of streaming gave rap empirical data that reflected its true popularity. But if you live by the numbers, any little dip can feel like a minor death. For now, the debate over hip hop's metrics might not matter so much. Since mid-year, a few more hip-hop artists have hit those number one spots. Lil Uzi Vert, Doja Cat, Travis Scott, and of course Drake. Another big BET Award nominee is on the verge too. Sexy Red had the crowd on his feet while performing her song, Ski Ye. Last time I checked, it was just below a Morgan Wallen song midway up the Billboard Hot 100. Rodney Carmichael, NPR Music in Atlanta. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being with us this evening. Temperatures are heading downward 59 degrees now. Tonight's lows may dip to the mid-40s. Clear skies up above. Gusty breezes as well. Tomorrow we could have bright skies early in the day with some clouds moving in as the day goes on. It's 559. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Good News Garage, accepting tax-deductible car donations and providing them to neighbors in need since 1996. Goodnewsgarage.org. And the Edward M. Kennedy Institute, committed to strengthening democracy. Join a discussion on Supreme Court reform, October 25th, emkinstitute.org. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Israel has warned one million residents of Gaza to leave their homes to clear the way for Israeli fighters to retaliate for last weekend's rampage through Israel. Israel has vowed to annihilate the Palestinian militant group Hamas, which is still holding scores of hostages. It's Friday, October 13th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, an imam and a rabbi in the United States talk about how they're counseling their congregations during the conflict between Israel and Hamas. Auto workers had retirement benefits for years and now they want them back. But some members of the United Auto Workers Union think that they won't see old-fashioned pensions again. I just don't think that a company's going to pay you for 20-plus years after you've already... I mean, that's a long time to be asking for. The concessions the automakers are more likely to make coming up. It's 6.01. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The World Health Organization is pleading with Israel to cancel its evacuation order of Gaza to avoid a debilitating public health crisis. NPR's Ari Daniel has more. The order affects more than a million Palestinians in northern Gaza. As Israeli bombardment has continued, even in advance of the evacuation deadline, hospitals are receiving more patients than they can handle. Dr. Mohammed Matar is the head of radiology at Al Shifa Hospital in North Gaza. We received many casualties, many injured people who has been attacked while trying to evacuate from Gaza, as we have been told. Many of them are children, kids without identity, without family. The WHO says a rapid evacuation of such a large number of people, many of whom are ill or injured, isn't possible to do safely. In fact, it warns that moving vulnerable individuals is tantamount to, quote, a death sentence. Ari Daniel, NPR News. The White House says North Korea has provided military equipment to Russia for its war against Ukraine. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports the U.S. government has been warning of that possibility for weeks. The White House said it has information showing more than one 1,000 containers of North Korean military equipment being delivered to Russia in recent weeks. We condemn the DPRK for, for providing Russia with this military equipment, which we use to attack Ukrainian cities, kill Ukrainian civilians, and further Russia's illegitimate war. John Kirby, the National Security Council spokesman, said the U.S. believes in return North Korea is seeking large weapons of its own, including aircraft, surface-to-air missiles, and armored vehicles. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. Twelve people have died in immigration detention centers since President Biden took office. The latest death occurring at the Port Isabel Detention Center in South Texas. Texas Public Radio's Gage Davila reports the facility has been plagued with issues. 32-year-old Julio Cesar Cherino Peralta died in custody on October 8th. He is the second man to die at the Port Isabel Detention Center under the Biden administration. Earlier this year, the Office of the Inspector General found that PIDC violated numerous standards for detainee safety. Stacey Suh is the program director at the nonprofit Detention Watch Network. And why can't we welcome people with dignity and treat people with humanity rather than detaining people and putting them in really dangerous and even deadly conditions? And we know that this happens over and over again. Why why should we let this continue? ICE has not disclosed a cause of death. I'm Gage Davila in McAllen, Texas. The head of the United Auto Workers Union says it's not adding any new factories to its strike list at the moment, but says more walkouts against the big three automakers could come at any time. Around 34,000 UAW members at different facilities are currently on strike. On Wall Street, the Dow's up 39 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Democratic leaders in the U.S. House are criticizing Republicans for nominating Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan for Speaker. Massachusetts Congresswoman and House Minority Whip Catherine Clark says Republicans have a choice, bipartisanship or doubling down on the extremism that has ground Congress to a halt. Every Republican who casts their vote for him is siding with an insurrectionist against our democracy. Clark accuses Jim Jordan of prioritizing division and hate over the interests of the American people. Local law enforcement says it does not know of any credible threats following calls from the militant group Hamas to show support worldwide for its attacks on Israel. The Anti-Defamation League of New England is urging people to be vigilant. The league's petty shooker says that the group does not recommend that schools or houses of worship close. However, and this is a big however, given the heightened tensions, 
uh, we strongly recommend the following security procedures and precautions be implemented. Remain aware, maintain a heightened level of awareness regarding suspicious activities in your vicinity. Police in several communities say they are boosting their presence outside religious and cultural centers. Today, a federal jury in Boston found a former congressional candidate from North Andover guilty of violating federal campaign laws. Prosecutors say that Abhijit Das took excessive campaign contributions to buy a super yacht, cover his business expenses, and pay off personal debt. He could get up to five years in prison and a quarter of a million dollar fine. Das is an attorney. He's under indictment in a separate case of diverting more than $5 million from his clients' accounts for personal expenses. He has pleaded not guilty to those charges. A Springfield man has pleaded guilty to his role in an organized theft ring that targets catalytic converters in cars in Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Federal prosecutors say Nicholas Davila was part of a group that stole $2 million worth of converters from 470 vehicles. Catalytic converters are part of the exhaust system of a vehicle and contain precious metals. Winds are picking up now. Temperatures are on the way down. 59 degrees in Boston should fall to the mid-40s overnight tonight, then rise only to the low 60s for tomorrow and Sunday. Should have a mix and clouds both days of the weekend. Again, 59 in Boston at 607. WBUR supporters include the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. More than one million Palestinians are under evacuation orders after the Israeli military warned residents of northern Gaza to leave their homes. The United Nations has said an evacuation of that scale is, quote, impossible without devastating humanitarian consequences. Noor Harazin is one of the people forced to flee. She's a freelance journalist in Gaza. Her parents refused to leave Gaza City and are sheltering at a hospital, but she fled south with her kids and husband. I was one of the luckiest people to get a car and basically um, move from Gaza to southern Gaza with a car, but we saw hundreds of people taking this route on their uh, feet, and you're talking about tens of kilometers. And I saw women crying and children crying, and people are shocked. Supplies of food and water in Gaza are dwindling, and there is no electricity. Gaza's main power plant shut down on Wednesday because Israel has blocked supplies of fuel. And hospitals are struggling to provide care. Outside of the hospital, right now I am standing in front of ice cream trucks that now the hospital is using to refrigerate and cold the bodies of the People killed because there is no more rooms in the hospitals. This is how bad the situation here in Gaza is. Elsewhere in Gaza, Mohammed Abu Safiya is one of those who stayed behind despite the order. He's sheltering with his wife and kids in a school in Gaza City. Five minutes before we reached him, he said airstrikes began around the school. We are all civilians, he says. The Israeli defense forces appear to be striking randomly. Along with residents, humanitarian groups working in Gaza also got orders to leave, including the International Committee of the Red Cross. I caught up with her spokesperson in Beirut, Iman Trabulsi, and asked her how well she's been able to keep in touch with her colleagues working on the ground in Gaza. 
we are trying to keep as, as much as possible in contact with uh, our colleagues. They're struggling to uh, to have internet connection, to have proper electricity as they're all undergoing the same circumstances that the overall population are undergoing right now, a permanent state of fear. They don't know if their houses are going to be next. They don't know when they're asked to evacuate, where to go to as eviction notes are everywhere. I was speaking to uh, my colleague Hisham, who who's one of our team, our communication team, uh, in Gaza right now. He's with a pregnant wife, he has a toddler, and uh, he was telling me uh, over the phone he, he, he doesn't know where to take them. He doesn't know where's, where's the next place that will be uh, that will be bombarded. He doesn't know if the place where they're spending the night is going to be safe. He pretty much, I think that that's the worst thing when you don't know, uh, when you're a parent and you don't know if your children are going to make the night or not. Yes. And as these questions abound, how are your colleagues trying to stay safe right now? It's very hard to, to find safety or to say that anywhere is safe around Gaza. Our colleagues are reporting to us that eviction notes over the past days, they were almost in every neighborhood around Gaza, and therefore, technically speaking, nowhere is safe. And that's one of the questions I have. Where are people supposed to evacuate? I mean, Gaza is sealed off. We're talking about one of the most densely populated areas of the world. Can southern Gaza fit another million people fleeing northern Gaza? Well, in general terms, they, the instruction that the Israeli authorities uh, have given to over 1.1 million people to evacuate from northern areas to towards the south, uh, without at the same time providing basic necessities such as shelter, food, water, medical care, not only endangers the lives of 1.1 million people, but furthermore, this is not in accordance and this is not compatible with what the international humanitarian law states in terms of uh, ordering evacuation as the authorities need to maintain uh, or the need to guarantee that these population have access to, the, to their basic needs, which is in this circumstances or the situation of siege that Gaza is undergoing, maintaining or guarantee these access to basic needs is no longer a guarantee for the majority of the population. These are the stories that we're hearing. People are struggling to find food, water, <laughs> access to health care is becoming more challenging every day and by the hour. Well, I saw a statement this morning from the ICRC saying that your organization is, quote, scaling up to provide life-saving relief in the middle of this evacuation. Can you give us more detail on that? What does this scaling up look like? At the moment, we are trying to be able to provide further assistance, but at the same time, that is not possible if we're not provided with the proper uh, security guarantees for our teams to be able to move around Gaza to provide assistance without risking their own lives. Um, we've been able to provide some assistance. We cannot say that the assistance that we provided is enough as we are facing uh, a complete uh, collapse of uh, the health sector, uh, a near collapse of the water system. We want to do more, but at the same time, if we're not provided with the proper security guarantees, we will not be able to uh, do the, the work or right. to provide the much needed assistance the way we want to. So is the ICRC going to be running out of important supplies quite soon? It's a, it's a fact today that there is a need, a crucial, and it's a matter of life and death that further humanitarian assistance is provided. We continue our discussion bilaterally 
with the parties uh, involved in the conflict in order to be able to, to solve several files, including the assistant files, including the hostages files. Uh, but it's crucial today. It's a matter we're really running against the clock when it comes to uh, providing further assistance. The pe people cannot survive for a long time in these circumstances with no health, no food, no water, no safety. Iman Trabulsi is with the International Committee of the Red Cross. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. And you can see NPR's full collection of stories about the war at npr.org slash Updates. Healthcare coverage for life. Guaranteed monthly income until you die. Very few Americans enjoy these benefits today, but auto workers had them for years and now they want them back. It's one of the sticking points in the talks going on now between the big three automakers and the United Auto Workers Union. NPR's Andrea Shu has more. On the picket line outside the Ford assembly plant in Wayne, Michigan, it's a gathering of generations. There's Drew Van Washinova. I just got out of high school and I've been working here for about two weeks. Two weeks before the strike started. He's happy to have the job and thinking his timing might not be bad. Hopefully I'm getting in at a good time with uh, this contract coming up. I'm really excited about it. And who else is excited? Mario Williams, who's worked for Ford for almost three decades. Oh, yeah, I've got 29. I'm retiring next year. So that's why it's so important to me. It's like, this is not just for me, but for all the new people coming in. Williams is what's called a legacy worker, hired in before 2007 when the UAW agreed to big concessions. New hires had to do the same work for less pay and far fewer retirement benefits. Now fast forward to today, the big three have agreed to get everyone back on the same wage scale, but they haven't agreed to bring back pensions or retiree health care. And that in particular worries Williams and his friend Christy Barrymore, who works in the paint shop. I can tell you just about everybody that makes as long as we have is going to have a knee replacement or a hip replacement shoulders, or shoulders. Yes. It's wear and tear yeah. on your body. Uh -huh. And you're in there and it's 100 degrees and you're throwing wire harnesses in a car. It's, it's hard, hard work. Now these two will tell you they do have excellent health care. They pay no premiums. Their co-pays are low. And they will get essentially the same thing in retirement, but not those hired after 2007. That's because those same generous benefits brought the car companies to their knees. In the financial crisis, two of the big three filed for bankruptcy. Merrick Masters is a business professor at Wayne State University. There was no way that they were going to be able to survive. The pool of retirees was ballooning. At one point, GM had 10 retired workers for every active one. The car companies couldn't compete with their foreign rivals who had set up non-union shops in the South. Plus, companies all over the place were getting rid of pensions. Hardly anyone was offering retiree health care. It was becoming harder and harder to justify. The UAW agreed to the concessions, seeing it as a way to return their companies to profitability. But now that profits have come roaring back, the union is demanding those benefits back as well. And Sean Fain, unlike previous leaders in the recent past, has pushed this. And already that push has yielded results. 
GM says it's offered to put more money into employees' 401k plans, which replaced pensions, and to set aside more money that retirees can use for health care. Ford and Stellantis have also upped their offerings. Outside the Jeep plant in Toledo, Ohio, Chris Snyder, who builds engines, wonders how much more the union will be able to squeeze out of the companies. I just don't think that a company is going to pay you for 20-plus years after you've already Sure, you've given them 30-plus years of your life, but another 20 years that you're going to live, I mean, that's a long time to be asking for. But Chris Snyder does want to see changes to their 401ks. Right now, the automakers cap their contributions at 40 hours a week. So here at Stellantis Jeep, we work 60 hours a week. He wants the cap removed and wants some additional matching incentive to encourage younger workers to save. Merrick Masters says he expects the big three will get creative to satisfy the union's demands. But a return to the retirement security of the past? Well, that's a hard sell. Their investors would literally throw up their hands and declare them something that you don't want to invest in. In other words, not a chance. Andrea Hsu, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR, this year alone, the Federal Trade Commission has received more than 5,000 complaints of solar panel fraud. There's a lot of money out there with the Inflation Reduction Act, but there's also a lot of bad actors who are really using this money to make well for themselves, but maybe not well for anyone else. The full cost of going solar coming up tonight on Marketplaces starts at 6.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Welch and Forbes. Over 180 years of experience providing trustee services for individuals and families. WelchForbes.com. And Arts Emerson with The Book of Life, an uplifting story of hope featuring Rwanda's first-ever women's drumming group. October 18th through 22nd, artsemerson.org. The final trading day of the week was mixed. The Dow pulled in a little more than a tenth of a percent. The S&P lost a half percent today, and the Nasdaq fell about one and a quarter percent. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Become a certified psychoanalyst and earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand how you can help your patients develop emotionally fulfilling lives. All prior master's degrees qualify for psychoanalytic training. Now accepting applications for spring. bgsp.edu. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Well, it's finally feeling like October tonight, down to about 45 degrees, clear and dry. No rain likely over the weekend. Partly sunny skies tomorrow. More clouds than sun by tomorrow afternoon. Temperatures rising to the low 60s. Partial sunshine on Sunday as well. A stiff breeze. Highs right around 60. 58 degrees now in Boston at 620. 
WBUR supporters include Swan Galleries with African American art at auction Thursday, October 19th with works by Alma Thomas, Norman Lewis, Sam Gilliam, and contemporary artists Simone Lee, Samuel Levi Jones, Carrie Mae Weems, and others. Information on the Swan Galleries app or swangalleries.com. And Renewal by Anderson, a full-service window and door replacement company supporting the American Cancer Society. Learn more at renewalbyandersoncares.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Watching events in Israel and Gaza over the last week has brought grief and pain to many Jews and Muslims in the U.S. Hamas launched its surprise attack last Saturday, and Israel's retaliation is still unfolding. This is a time when many people turn to their faith and their community. So we've invited a rabbi and an imam to share how they are counseling their congregations here in the States. Imam Muhammad Herbert is a resident scholar of the Islamic Center of Johnson County, Kansas, and Sharon Brous is senior rabbi and founder of IKAR, a Jewish congregation in Los Angeles, California. Good to have you both here. Thank you, Ari. Absolutely a pleasure. Thank you for having us. What will be the message that each of you give to your congregations as people gather to pray together this weekend? Imam Herbert, your holy day is today. Why don't you begin? Yeah, I think when we speak about a uh, a message, uh, I think you uh, elaborated it so eloquently when you mentioned that a lot of people turn to faith when they're looking for answers, when they're looking for that guidance in life, that light. And for our sermon today, what we've prepared is kind of a, a reflection piece, taking an opportunity to reflect on our lives internally, and then to think about how it is that we will respond externally, right? Faith without action is absolutely useless. And action without faith is misguided. And so when we speak about an internal response to how it is uh, uh, that we internalize everything that's happened, one of the key things that I hope for my community to, to step away from the, the sermon with is understanding that there is pain on both sides, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or God Almighty, he mentions in the Quran in chapter 3, in verse number 140, that if you have suffered injuries in the battlefield, understand that the opposition has suffered uh, injuries and pain as well. Rabbi Brous, what is your message going to be this weekend for, for your congregation when they gather for Shabbat services? What I've been focusing on all week since the moment that we heard about this attack on Shabbat, which was also the holiday of Simchat Torah last Saturday, a day in which we are commanded to experience joy as a Jewish people. So there is an added heartache that it happened on this holy day. I think the first role of a pastor in this moment is just to create sacred space where people can grieve together and hold an uncomplicated sorrow with one another. I also see the pastor's task as offering some kind of moral clarity, which in this case um, means both repeating again and again that there is no justification for crimes against humanity, that the rape, kidnapping, murder of innocence is never justifiable. And I also need to remind my community 
that Palestinians are suffering terribly also now and will continue to in the days ahead. And so just as we ask the world to see our pain and stand with us in our sorrow, it's our moral and spiritual obligation to do the same, to expand our lens of care and concern, to also encompass the Palestinian people. I was on a briefing yesterday and there was um, a Bedouin doctor from Soroka Hospital in the South, Dr. Yasmin Abu Fraiha, and she's been treating many of the people who came in from the massacre site. And she said, the real dividing line is not between Israelis and Palestinians, but between those who believe violence is the answer and those who believe there is another way. And I believe there's another way. And Imam Herbert believes there's another way. And most of us believe that there's another way. So together we have to reject the very reductive idea that Jews and Palestinians must be enemies eternally and instead create a different way of finding one another in relationship and lifting up and affirming our own humanity and one another's. I know that this is personal for people in both of your communities. Um, Imam Herbert, people in your town have relatives in Gaza. Rabbi Brous, people in your congregation have family members in Israel. Can you each tell me about a conversation you've had with a specific person this week, what they've needed and what you've offered them? Rabbi Brous, do you want to begin? Well, one of my closest friends, um, her best friend and lifelong friend is among those who have been abducted and taken into Gaza. And I want to say her name, it's Vivian Silver. She started an organization called Women Wage Peace. She literally has dedicated her life to making peace between Israelis and Palestinians. She is a mother, a grandmother, and a worldwide activist. And she is among those who we have not heard from since she texted her sons that, that Hamas was in her home. Imam Herbert? We have uh, community members who have family in Gaza, and when it comes to reaching out to some of our Palestinian family members, I can certainly sympathize with Rabbi Sharon and her friends. It's hard, it's very difficult knowing that your friends and family are in pain. It's even more difficult when you can't reach them. One brother in particular who reached out to me just a couple of days ago, He's a, a doctor in the community, actually. And so this is someone who, uh, but they're thinking to themselves that there's nothing that we can do. And then obviously, you know, we yearn uh, as a community for everyone that's losing lives. Could each of you give us one passage in your sacred texts that have been meaningful to you this week that you've turned to? In the Jewish community, we start reading at the beginning of the Torah this week. This is Parshat Bereshit. It's called the very beginning of Genesis. And I've been thinking about the end of the sixth day of creation, which is the first day that Adam and Eve are alive. And the, the rabbis tell us in the Midrash that at the end of the first day, when it grew dark, that Adam got really scared because he had never seen darkness before. And he started to weep and scream and cry. And Eve came over and just sat right across him and cried with him all night long until the dawn came. And I feel it's such a beautiful, powerful statement about how there's always a dawn that comes after even the deepest darkness. And our job as human beings is to come and sit with one another and hold each other in the sorrow until we're able to once again walk toward the light. Imam Herbert? For me, I think the passage that I mentioned in the beginning of the interview is one that really sticks out, that just as you have suffered injuries, and losses. The people uh, that you are fighting have also suffered injuries and losses. Um, and I think during times like this of extreme loss, it's easy to lose sight in God. It's easy to, to take the 
easy route out or the scapegoat route out and to say something like, how can a God of mercy allow something like this, right? But the truth of the matter is there are ups, there are downs. Stay connected with God. And at the end, you'll find your paradise. Before we say goodbye, is there anything you would like to say to each other? I will say to you, Imam Herbert, I am holding you and your community, your beloveds in your mosque and their families in Gaza in my heart and in my prayers. And I know that there is a better way for humanity, that we can walk together toward peace, dignity, and justice for all people. And I, I really appreciate you as a partner in that work. Thank you. Absolutely. I think um, also I sharing the same sentiment. Uh, for me, I think one of the the, the most profound things that, that I heard you say that uh, uh, really, really stuck out to me, Rabbi, was um, you mentioned that the real enemies of this war are not the Jews or the Israelis or the Palestinians. It's those people who have decided that violence is the only answer. Um, and that really, really stuck with me that this shows that there actually is a way to have a conversation. Imam Muhammad Herbert of the Islamic Center of Johnson County, Kansas, and Rabbi Sharon Brous of ECAR in Los Angeles. Thank you both. And thank you. Thank you, Ari. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni, restaurant, and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways, ElliottHotel.com. And the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. Join a vibrant academic community. Enjoy in-person, peer-led courses on their Cambridge campus, speaker events, special interest groups, and more. Apply by October 25th to start in February. To learn more, visit their website, the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement.